the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour uh, is the the son of a diplomat who uh, spent his early years in the Middle East and in Africa and then trained as a lawyer. He's written a book, um, a fascinating book that's being called... um, fast-paced thriller wrapped in a memoir. It's called Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East, based on a uh, true life story. His name is Daniel Levin, and he joins me by phone. Good morning, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, I'm just so... um, I'm not even sure where to begin with you, Daniel. You got a phone call um, from an acquaintance just out of the blue that said, hey, let's, I, I need to meet you in Paris. Well, it wasn't entirely out of the blue, as these things uh, usually aren't. Uh, it just took me a while to figure it out. I had, uh, this is uh, starting in 2011, 2012, when the war in Syria started. Uh, I'd been involved in a few uh, hostage negotiations there. In other words, Western hostages, Europeans, actually also Japanese, also Americans, who people had gone missing, a whole range from journalists to adventurers to aid workers, and uh, had been asked because of the work of our foundation in the region, uh, and we had networks in some parts in Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, had been asked to see if we could get information from them initially, and in some cases those involved in negotiations of the release. So when this request came in 2014, in that respect, it wasn't entirely out of the blue. It came on the heels of a really 
painful and failed effort, uh, and so I wasn't inclined to actually do this ever again when that request came. But it wasn't, as you say, you know, entirely out of the book. Well, you were in New York, and you had to go to Paris for this uh, this meeting. Um, how did you go from um, studying law to doing this kind of work? Oh, that's a, that's a, in itself a long story. So um, I was born in Israel. Then uh, my dad was a diplomat, grew up in Kenya, actually in the 60s, and ended up uh, all living all over the place, including a stint in the U.S. after high school. When I decided ultimately to study law, um, what I was interested in is, uh, is laws as it related to rebuilding economies of of the countries that were emerging either from the Cold War in the late 80s uh, or in Southern Africa and changes in the, you know, in, in South Africa from Mandela came out. So I was involved as a lawyer in um, a lot of matters relating to these new countries, such as writing new constitutions, for example. So there was some connection. In the end, in the 90s, at a law firm in New York, and we had developed a financial and political development platform, sort of legislation, education programs, tools uh, to build these new countries that either had emerged from civil war or from communism in Eastern Europe and provide these tools to a new generation of leaders. So that was the context. That, that platform ended up getting sold to European Charitable Foundation in 2009, and it was the work for this foundation that brought me to uh, the Middle East again in that capacity. We're trying actually to rebuild. This is early in the civil war in Syria when it wasn't clear at all that the Syrian regime would would uh, emerge victoriously uh, as it looks now because at the time, this was before Russia had intervened, uh, and, the, and the Syrian government was actually taking quite a beating. And so um, there was an incentive to you, to ask our foundation to help rebuild this country and to work with a group of young people that would be available to rebuild this country when the killing stopped. This is in 2012 primarily, a little bit 2013. So uh, so this request to find someone who had gone missing there was in that context. That was the backdrop. It was, it was that kind of work, and that's how I got there initially as a lawyer and then more and more simply as a mediator. Was there, given your background with your dad having served as a diplomat and the fact that you lived in... in various places around the world. Was there ever any choice, uh, Daniel, for you other than international relations of some sort? I think so. You know, I mean, um, academically, I had, uh, when I studied law initially, what had, uh, what was interesting to me was a completely different area of the law. I was really more focused on on an area called conflicts of law, I was really fascinated with conflicts between religious and secular systems. How do we reconcile religious law when it conflicts with our secular principles? For example, if you have a unilateral divorce in a religious law, any one of the religions that allows divorce, uh, how do we reconcile it? So that was my academic direction. I had stayed in academia, and when I came to the estate, um, I came here really uh, initially thinking I would pursue an academic career, and it, I wish I could tell you that I had some great strategy to end up where I ended up in my career and doing the things I did, but it really wasn't the case. I just uh, it, it was very serendipitous. It was one thing that came after the other, so it wasn't it wasn't 
you know, predestined in any way because of my own background. I really had different aspirations. And those aspirations adjusted for a number of reasons, but not because I sat and thought, well, you know, what is the absolute best strategy? It was a lot of luck involved, sometimes bad luck that you, you know, you take another turn and you realize it leads to, to, to things you might not have been able to do otherwise. You've gotten involved in a, a number of different uh, negotiations. What made this one book-worthy? This one was particularly uh, uh, particularly uh, ugly, I would say, or unusual in its in its violence, because it was so senseless. And more than any other experience, in any other in disappearance and negotiation, this one exposed me more than anything by by huge proportions to the economics of the war. Uh, I really, for the first time, did I realize? You know, we all understand that money fuels wars and power fuels wars that's not new but i'd never seen it in such an unadulterated way that uh that there are some people who just make such astronomical money on trading everything not just bartering things that become scarce in a war such as heating oil or food or water or blankets but also uh the trade in in drugs the trade in weapons the trade in human beings in the course of this story I uh, am trying to find a person who can give me information on what happened to the to the uh, w- missing Westerner, and in the course of that, I stumble into this uh, trade of young girls who are kidnapped. I mean, really young, the youngest, sometimes ten years old, sometimes sixteen years old, kidnapped from villages in Syria and sold sold into sex slavery. Uh, in, in primarily in this case, in the Gulf, in the in the Gulf, in the, in the in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And and so I really, over these 20 days, had this in, incredibly intense primer of the war economy way beyond things that I'd experienced before. And I felt that this condensed experience over these 20 days would be a powerful way to to convey how this war works. And, and it's just one experience. I'm not saying everyone has the same experience. But it did, when you read it and you realize the financial stakes and gains involved, we start to understand why these wars can last so long. Because at some point, you look at Syria, the country is completely destroyed. Uh, Assad told the people 10 years ago, you either, uh, you either get me or I'll destroy the country. And in the end, the Syrians got both. They got him and the country is destroyed. And you wonder, why does it happen? Why does nobody really rebuild the war? And when you understand the huge profits involved in it, uh, and for some, this may be obvious, but for me, I experienced it so viscerally, I felt this was uh, worth telling. Were you prepared for what you encountered? Did you have a plan going into it? Um, it, it was more that I protected myself for the risk more than a plan. You really, It's really like you're pulling at a string, and you have to go where the string takes you. You, you really don't know who's going to give you the information you need, whether it's proof of life or other information, let alone starting to negotiate it. So there's, you do it in stages, and at every stage there's a different plan. So when you're just gathering, first of all, you have to gather information on who might have a clue. Then you have to filter out those who are likely either not to tell you the truth or to exact a price that you're not able to pay. So, so you start to filter it step after step before you even start a negotiation. What you do have a plan for from the beginning, though, is the, the scenarios in which you absolutely have to extricate yourself. 
where things either get too dangerous or too unsavory, where you cannot justify being involved despite you're trying to help someone. Uh, that you have a plan for from the beginning. Uh, is there ever any rationale for why people disappear in that region other than the uh, the trafficking that goes on? Well, there, there's a big difference between uh, locals, meaning Syrians who are kidnapped and sold, like the like the young girls uh, and young women in my in my book, uh, and they ultimately were a big powerful uh, motivator for me to write the book and say what happened to two in two two individuals in particular. Um, but if you're asking the question about uh, non-locals who get lost there, non and also non-mercenaries. So, of course, you also have fighters who go there as mercenaries who suffer fates from death to, to obviously, kidnapping. But if you're asking about the sort of average profile of Westerners who get lost, a lot of them are journalists. And among the journalists, there are those who are sent by their uh, outlets, whether it's TV or print. And then you have uh, uh, freelancers also, people who don't have a mandate to write something, but go there because uh, they believe that you know, having a, a very powerful war story, uh, an inside story on the war, is going to uh, start jumpstart a career or get them published. You have those, and then you have, of course, aid workers, and every once in a while, uh, as was the case here, you have people who are sort of adventure seekers, people who think that you know this is going to be a life-altering experience, which, of course, it is. Uh, just often not in the way people envisage, and and don't really appreciate how visceral this conflict is and how senseless it is. In other words, there are people, despite rationally perhaps understanding it, who go in their thinking that since they are not a foreign agent or since they are not a combatant and since they uh, are either going to help in the case of doctors or aid workers or journalists who want to report on the group, some part of it don't realize that there is a senselessness to the violence and, and the financial aspect to the violence that, that will not keep them protected. And this happens again. There are currently several Americans even that I'm aware of, and there I'm sure several I'm not aware of, and this is just Americans there, um, British citizens, French citizens, Japanese citizens, still in Syrian captivity whose names don't make the, the news. Uh, because, again, no one's really claiming them. So... Uh, there's really a broad range of reasons in most cases, and there are exceptions, of course. There's some journalists who know exactly what risks they're taking, and some, like Marie Colvin, take, you know, pay the ultimate price with their lives. Um, but the overwhelming part of people who go in there don't really truly appreciate the risk. They may know it theoretically, but until you experience that violence, uh, it, it really no one's really prepared, and by then it's, of course, too late. Daniel, I have to take a uh, a break here, but I want to talk to you some more about this. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Sure. Excellent. With pleasure. My guest is uh, Daniel Levin. He is the uh, author of a uh, book called Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. And uh, we'll have more with uh, Daniel after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break, they are WFOV 92.1 LPFM, our voices radio in Flint. And uh, if you're streaming us on TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Everybody's doing. 
little brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show and welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with uh, Daniel Levin, the author of uh, a book called Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Daniel, uh, welcome back, and thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Not at all. Thanks a lot. Probably not as uh, rough as the 20 days you spent uh, on the hunt for someone missing <laughs> in the Middle no. East. Um but let's uh, earlier in the in the last segment, I, I mentioned that uh, this book was described as uh, a fast-paced thriller wrapped in a memoir. And in the last segment, you talked about a couple of people whose stories you wanted to tell. How much of this book is thriller? How much is memoir? And how much is expose? All of it is all of it. I would say <laughs> at least that was my aspiration. Uh, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't alter the story. Uh, it, it really was the way it was written. I uh, I documented and annotated some footnotes to give those readers who are interested in it from a historical or journalistic perspective also that information. But um, the thriller, you, you know, if you're going through this and you're dealing constantly with people who are not very good people uh, and not disposed kindly towards you, and you're trying to extract something from them, and you have to constantly weigh your own security or also figure out what kind of leverage you have or chips uh, over these people to get that information. The thrill, it, you know, sort of keeps on repeating itself every day throughout these 20 days. What made this so unusual, you know, in, in other cases where I have been involved and continue to be involved, these things drag on for much, much longer, and there are periods of time where you're stepping away from it, where nothing happens as hard as it is, and as hard as it is, not only for those who have gone missing, but especially for their families. Uh, in this particular case, it got so condensed just because of that's how the events unfolded. And I was chasing for most of these uh, 20 days, I was chasing behind uh, initially a group and then one individual who I knew possessed the information that I was looking for. And trying to get to him uh, was as much the thrill as everything else. And then uh, throughout, towards the last days of the book, uh, the, I start interacting with these two young women, uh, and their lives start to intertwine. So there's a whole new narrative that evolves from that, which is lasting in my life until this day. So I think that the thriller and the pacing was just the way these 20 days unfolded. I didn't have to, you know, I, I didn't have to embellish that or fictionalize anything about that. I really just wrote it as I experienced it. The person that you were trying to find, what was their reason for being there, and, and how did they put themselves in a position to disappear? Uh, you know, that's surprisingly easy, actually. This was a person who uh, was trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life, uh, felt he had a complicated personal history, um, and felt lost, and was trying to find some purpose. He had a different connection to Syria, too, which I, I mentioned in the book, but the primary reason he ends up marching into there, and maybe for us today as we're having this conversation, it feels absurd, but, you know, he found himself basically crossing the border with uh, a few people in, in Turkey 
in, in the Kurdish region in Turkey, which is obviously bordering Syria and the north of Syria, and ended up thinking that this would be an experience that he could just take in something in his life, an experience that would alter it, provide him the kind of clarity. I know this may sound absurd to someone because you may be sitting in Flint saying what would ever possess someone to walk into a war zone, but this happens a lot more than you think. People are just lost who don't really know this, sometimes between jobs, between careers, often between relationships, uh, and, and want to find some kind of a purpose. So whether it is that, you know, you want to go and help Doctors Without Borders who are running a clinic outside Aleppo in the north, or, uh, or you want to help some effort to distribute medicine, or whether you just want to report on the war because pe- the world needs to know how bad it is. People have all kinds of motivations, but essentially to say they're just adventurers would be not fair to them because they're really just seeking purpose. And, you know, who cannot relate to that? We don't necessarily always take on, you know, potentially life-threatening situations for that, but it's like asking what would possess a person, you know, to jump out of a plane in a, in a, in a wingsuit. You know, you're, you're, you're taking a risk of dying, but there's something about it you hope is going to affect you. Some of it's the thrill, some of it's the danger. So, People voluntarily, voluntarily do things and volunteer for, volunteer for certain things that, uh, that may not seem rational, but from their perspective, uh, provides them sort of meaning and purpose that they might otherwise be lacking. I think this was the case very much here. And, and I have to tell you, of, um, of the individuals and the disappearing, disappeared people I've known, even those, let's say, who were journalists or freelance journalists, there was that element of it that was always present, sort of trying to do something a little bit greater than yourself, something that changes the routine that you've had in your life until now. And so it's, it's not really as unusual as it may sound to, to the uninitiated. Now, it was interesting in the last segment you talked about profiteering and how different that looked to you when you got inside of it during this search. Um, in regions where there's conflict, does the profiteering just completely take over and dominate everything, or is there still ideology? There certainly, I mean, to make a sweeping statement and say that no one in this war is fighting for ideology is always incorrect. There certainly are, and in any group, you have people fighting for ideology, and if you take Syria, whether you have the the regime the groups affiliated with the regimes, they're primarily composed of Shia Alawi, the Alawi sect of Shia Islam from the coastal region in Latakia and Tartus. Uh, but to say that that's all they are, for example, the most vicious uh, secret service intelligence officer, a guy called Ali Mamluk, who's been negotiating uh, with our government, including with Mike Pompeo in the last government, in the last administration, he happens not to be a Shia, for example. So it's always a little more complex than that. not only about a religious affiliation or an ideology, and there certainly are. But I think what is fair to say is ideology alone is not going to keep this war alive. It's not just that you have Islamist rebels fighting against, uh, uh, you know, Sunni Islamist rebels coming from ISIS and other groups fighting against the Shia regime. It's not about that ideology only. And when you see the astronomical profits, uh, you realize how much that alone will keep that conflict alive. Look, it's not new that, for example, you have a flourishing drug trade in wars, and in many cases, flourishing drug trade that leads to wars. That's true if you're familiar with the drug wars in Central and South America. That's true if you're aware with the 
poppy production in Afghanistan. That's nothing new, and Lebanon has had its own drug-related uh, drug, uh, wars, too. But in Syria, for example, the production of this amphetamine called, called Captagon, which has ravaged societies in the Gulf and even in Europe now, with just huge amounts of, of pills that are produced in Syrian labs, and are sold all over the place that implicate not just the people manufacturing it and, and being couriers and trading them and distributing, not only the dealers, they also manufacture, they, they also implicate the financial institutions through which the profits are laundered in many cases. And so, you know, there's a, me there's a mechanism to this war that implicates so many more people so that when you see that, you realize, yeah, there's certainly some ideology, and certainly in the beginnings of the war, the war started as an uprising against the regime. So there was that element of that ideology, and it's certainly present with some people too. But what keeps a civil war like this alive 10 years later with a country completely devastated, with a population devastated, with a refugee crisis that's affecting everyone. I mean, if you look at the rise of right-wing governments in Europe, it's directly correlated to the refugee crisis and immigration coming from Iraq and Syria into Europe. Uh, you know, so you start to see, you ask yourself, well, why is it that this war can't be ended, right? And it's not because of ideology. The reason the war can't be ended again is because of these unbelievably powerful financial interests. The drug trade is just one. The human trade is another one. The weapons trade is another one. The, the business, the mercenary business, which you see for example, the same individuals, the Russian mercenaries from the Wagner Group that you see in Syria, the same ones you see in Libya. So you start to see these patterns and these parallels between these kinds of civil wars. And the one thing they also have in common is, of course, you end up wiping out everyone, what we would call a middle class. So you have a very small group of people, usually men, who become astronomically wealthy and figure out a way to function. Uh, and then you have just the vast majority of the people who lose everything and everything in between and everyone in between simply gets wiped out. So when you see these patterns, conflict to conflict, yeah, there is ideology. Every conflict is a little bit different. Afghanistan is different from Syria, is different from the Congo, is different from Chad or Libya, uh, is different from another country, Myanmar right now, you know, with, with, with uh, unrest there. But when you look at the interests of power and, and money, you start to detect some common denominators. To what degree, you know, from the U.S., and largely because the coverage is not as extensive um, as, as other media outlets around the world, we tend to think of the Middle East regionally and not in terms of these, these little individual conflicts that that you've described um, how much does uh, the president's efforts to pull the uh, troops out of Afghanistan impact the region and and similarly the escalating conflict between Israel and Palestine and in these other little areas is there any destabilization to be expected from the removal of troops in Afghanistan? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, they're, they're, the, these conflicts are often correlated, uh, and the conflict of Afghanistan, if you go 
if you just take back a few steps in history and you look at the fact that our earliest allies in that conflict, which were Saudi and Yemeni and other fighters who went there to fight the Soviet invasion, became our biggest enemies, and ultimately those who attacked the U.S. in 9-11 with al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. When you see how these things translate, uh, it, it shows us a number of things. It shows that these things are correlated, but mostly it shows us that they're, they're correlated in ways that we're really bad at predicting. Humans are bad predictors any which way. Um, <laughs> but, the, but, but if you look, for example, at the decision to, to uh, remove Saddam, to go into the Iraq war, it's very easy to see the correlation between the removal of Saddam and the strengthening of Iran. And yet those who were cheering uh, the removal of Saddam, including the current Israeli prime minister, are the ones who are also lamenting the loudest and the most aggressively about the, the, uh, the, uh, those in power in the Iranian regime. So you'd think there's, there's not a lot of coherent strategy going in there. So, you know, the, when you ask about removal of troops in Afghanistan, it only makes sense to answer that question in kind of historical context and see whether that makes sense before we even get to the question of whether the removal in the way it's occurring is the right one or not. Uh, I, I think this is far too loaded a question, but th- there's so little coherent Middle Eastern strategy, and the U.S. as a superpower has essentially can afford to make that mistake. Don't get me wrong. I still think men- much of this is a mistake. I think the way... Iran is being approached as a mistake. Again, you're not going to solve any situation between Israel and Palestine without addressing Iran. You're not going to solve it uh, in, in between Israel and and, uh, Leb- and Lebanon if hostilities broke out again there, as they look now overnight. There were a few with, uh, if Hezbollah starts to fire rockets, obviously Iran's involved, but you can't really understand and solve the Iranian issue if you don't go back and say, well, why did the Gulf War happen? Did that make sense? If Iran is really identified as the largest threat, why do you take out Iran's only so-called natural enemy, which was Saddam Hussein? So these things, if you start to really put them into context, the only thing you emerge with are, I think, two truths. One is it's very hard to predict outcomes, and B, there's very little intelligent strategizing going on with these wars. Uh, and so, and this is neither for or against the war. Obviously, you, I think I'm sure you can hear from my voice how I feel about these wars generally. Uh, no one is for a war, obviously. But, but they're all interconnected. The refugee crisis, the Syrian war spills, for example, into not only into Lebanon, but into Jordan. I described in the book the refugee crisis in the north of Jordan, which is completely destabilizing Jordan. Well, if you destabilize Jordan, let's say, and the monarchy is in jeopardy, as recently we have started to wonder what's going to replace the monarchy in Jordan is not a sort of Swiss-style Western liberal democracy. What's very likely to, to replace that is a Syrian-type scenario. And, and so you start to see how carelessly uh, political decision-makers uh, are juggling these kinds of decisions without really anticipating the consequences or, at the very least, the fact that it's very hard to anticipate the consequences. It, the U.S. government was convinced that, that our troops would be greeted as liberated in Iraq. And if you look back now and you say, well, that didn't quite turn out that way. Uh, and and the, it's not to say, well, I could have predicted it better, but I think it's, a little, it's important to be a little more humble and say, I really can't predict these things. I've got to think about this really hard. Before we even get into the 
the reasons for the Iraq war and whether you know it was based on a lie or not. That that's a whole separate discussion. Did the U.S. end up just uh, really kind of retracing Russia's footsteps in Afghanistan? Uh, well, it certainly didn't learn the mis- from the mistakes that the Soviet Union at the time, and then of course Russia later after the collapse of the Soviet Union made. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know that we as the U.S. needed to go to Afghanistan to learn that lesson. You'd think maybe Vietnam would have taught us that lesson. So uh, I'm not going to say anything very new by saying that history only teaches us that we don't learn from history, whether it's our <laughs> own or that of others. But, uh, you know, the same is true for the Yemen conflict. I mean, Yemen has been a country where powers go and get decimated. Nasser learned it in the late 50s in Yemen, the Egyptian president at the time, and yet the Saudis, when they started the war in Yemen, forgot that lesson again. So I, I think there's that hubris, is that to some extent, ignorance of history, and then there's that hubris of people in power, and the more power they have, the more arrogant they usually are, that it's just going to be different, because they're just a little smarter, a little more powerful than others. And, uh, of course, they're rarely the ones, those who make those decisions are really rarely the ones paying the price for it. That's the tragedy of these conflicts. Well, in the in the book Proof of Life, um, the uh, Proof of Life, uh, twenty days on the hunt for a missing person in the Middle East. Um, is it a spoiler alert, Daniel, to ask if the missing person was found? Yeah, I think it is a spoiler. Okay. So, fair, uh, fair enough. I, I mean, I, I do I do discover I, I do find what I was trying to find. That I will say. I think beyond that. You want a reader to go on that journey with me throughout these twenty days. Yeah, I that's that's why I asked that the way I did <laughs> was to give you that out. Yeah. Um, but it, what were the the um, what were some of the uh, other lessons that that you take away from the book, and and what are you hoping readers will take away from the book? Uh, I, I think that uh, you know. Just to answer the second question first, um, it, 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 what you really want leaders to take away is that you have to be humble about these conflicts. And if you want to end these conflicts, and by the way, that is true also for the current, uh, for the current fighting between Israel and, and uh, Hamas in Gaza, uh, if you want to end these fightings, whether it's through uh, ceasefires or, or other forms of uh, uh, end to the conflict, obviously in the best of cases through peace negotiations, um, you have to not only understand uh, who benefits from these conflicts politically or financially. If you look at the conflict between Israel and Hamas, there's no doubt that the, the, those who emerged, you know, really strengthened was Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister in Israel, whose political career a few weeks ago seemed to be over, and now He's the man again. Uh, and Hamas, of course, uh, who had seen a lot of um, challenges to their authority also in Gaza because of the situation in Gaza, also because of the pandemic. And now they're emerging again strongly when, in fact, their leaders are sitting in, in uh, Qatar holding speeches. So they're not the ones paying the ultimate price. So if you first of all have to identify who benefits politically, financially, and if you want to end these conflicts, uh, as an outside power, be it as a superpower like the U.S. in coalition with others, Russia, China, others, uh, or in through the, the institutions such as the United Nations. 
You have to, after you've identified it, you have to uh, end that cascade of benefits. In other words, for example, the, the financial gains that, uh, that are so immense have to be interrupted, whether it's the drug trade, whether it's financial institutions, global financial institutions, uh, including in the Western Hemisphere, uh, earning money on legitimizing those ill-begotten gains of those profits. So there are elements to this conflict that if you do not address that, uh, and that involves also addressing our own domestic, our own corruption in this process that others have written about and spoken about, you know, plentifully. If you don't, if you don't look at that and deal with it, you're not going to end these conflicts. They can last a really long time, as we've experienced in our own history and other countries have experienced in their own history. These wars can last, they can rage, they can simmer and then rage again for decades and decades. Uh, Israel and Palestine, obviously, is just one example. Uh, and, and, and they metastasize. So if you look at the conflict there, if you look at Syria, what starts as a particular group with a certain amount of power, the longer the conflict rages and the longer it lasts, you have to think of it as a cancer that metastasizes. It doesn't just go away on its own if you don't address it. Uh, so that's number one. Um, what can we learn in that sense out of it is, like, if you don't address those elements, you're not going to end these conflicts. And just doing, you know, peace summits in Geneva where you get try to get the parties together is not going to cut it. The second, the first question that you ask is, you know, what can you take away from it? There's, of course, a lot of sadness and tragedy, and there is in my story, too. But there also is hope. Uh, and there is there is uh, stories of two individuals that I write in there. I don't want to give it again away as a, as a spoiler. We see that people can escape it, and if fair-minded individuals work together to help individuals, uh, we really can make a difference in their lives. And I know this may sound saccharine or trite, but sometimes that's all you can do. Yeah, I don't have the power and the platform. I'm not American president. I'm not the Russian president. I don't have the the power to really impact whether the fighting will stop or not, whether the killing will stop or not. That's not, that's not the, the tools that I, those are not the tools I have at my disposal, unfortunately. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we individually can't help individuals are caught in that. And everyone in, in a different way. And those that you will see in these stories that, that are able to get out and start a different life, they were helped by people uh, and, and I'm not talking about myself now. They were helped by other individuals who just helped because they were kind people. And you see a war bring that out of people, too. You see really awful behavior, real things that you would like to call unhuman, but unfortunately, actually, it's just all too human. Uh, but you also see acts of kindness that are, that are without any vested interest, without any benefit, and people who stay anonymous and help. And those are, and, and, and I do write about those, too. They're part of this story. Uh, and, and I think that the reader will take that away and not just walk away feeling devastated by this, but also hopeful about it. Daniel, I have another break coming up here. Can, can you stick around a little bit longer? Sure, gladly. Okay, my guest is uh, Daniel Levin. The book is uh, described as a mind-blowing exploration of how people use leverage to get what they want. Um, it's called uh, Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt. For a missing person in the Middle East, and uh, we'll talk some more with author Daniel Levin after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some 
messages as well. And uh, Daniel has agreed to hang around, and we'll wrap things up in the uh, in the next segment. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. More of the Tom Sumner program is straight ahead, and uh, lots more of the show yet today. So stay tuned. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, 
Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is the author of a book called Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East, Daniel Levin. He joins me by phone. Daniel, thanks for sticking around, and uh, once again, sorry to make you sit through all that. My pleasure, not a ton of problem. Um, Daniel, uh, we ran out of time in the last segment, and and uh, I, I asked you to to go into overtime, and and thank you for doing that. Um, but what I really wanted to ask is, now that the mission is over, the book is written and out. What's next for Daniel Levin? Well, my work still continues. I mean, this book is uh, one that happened in 2014. I still do the same work. Uh, I'm active still with the same foundation that works in the Middle East. We're active in Libya. We're active in Yemen. Uh, Most of my work is trying to work, is trying to identify young, promising individuals who can be part of rebuilding those countries. And so uh, the, the things that are written in the book are uh, experience is an experience that I had along the way. The, the hostages, unfortunately, are still being taken in these conflict zones in, in Syria and in other countries. And in some cases, I'm asked to, to help, to help either because to ask if I know anything or can get any information, or in other cases, to get more intimately involved as I was in this particular case. So uh, my life really hasn't changed, and also, and some of the uh, some of the people that you will meet in this book are still very much in my life today. Uh, people that, and, and that was what I was referring to at the end of the last segment, the, the hopeful part of it. There, there are people who do manage to get out and, and do manage to build themselves a new life. And uh, when you are involved with them getting out, th- those are not just impressions you will never forget, but also those are individuals who become part of your life like family. So, so I, I'm still living the experiences of this book and, and very similar situations every day of my life. You know, for the last year and a half, uh, a lot of us, not just in the U.S., but around the world, have uh, you know been sort of sheltering in place or in quarantine because of the pandemic. But these conflicts continue. Are they just unencumbered by the, the COVID-19? Yeah, they're they're unencumbered, and when you're interacting with people in these uh, war zones, uh, they obviously are worried about COVID-19, those who are informed, uh, as is everyone else, but they put it in the context of the other risks of their lives. So, you know, the chance of them being killed by a mortar shell or a bullet or a landmine or a cluster bomb or a chemical attack is a lot... Uh, by violence, essentially, is that, that likelihood is a lot higher than than succumbing to the coronavirus. So they have a completely different perspective uh, on this type of a pandemic. Uh, it, it hasn't affected the violence. It hasn't slowed it down. Uh, look, we had outbreaks of cholera in Yemen, you know, that, that 
we didn't think would be possible. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the, in the West, people shrug about it because it doesn't affect us as opposed to a global pandemic. The only reason we're paying attention is because it's affecting us. But these are often areas that are ravaged by disease. Uh, it, there isn't a, a civil war with this kind of viciousness that I'm aware of that also doesn't suffer from unspeakable disease. Uh, and so these things go hand in hand. They're so very accustomed to that. So they, it's not that they're looking at the pandemic with a, you know, with a smile and saying, wow, you, know, you guys are being very dramatic about something we live in. But it's just, it just is part of the overall threats to life that exist, and it's by far not the biggest one in those regions. So it hasn't changed the trajectory of the war, slowed it down in any respect. Well, Daniel, it's uh, been an honor and a privilege chatting with you, and I appreciate you spending this time with me this morning. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, do you have a website that you can refer people to? I do. Yeah, I mean, I do. There's obviously works that websites for the foundation, other work and interviews. But the the website specifically is for the book, and the activities related to the book are on my personal author's website, DanielLevinAuthor.com. Uh, and obviously, books you can get anywhere books are sold. Uh, but on my website, you'll find a lot of information on the book, on myself, and on uh, on this kind of work. Well, Daniel, thanks so much for spending this time with me this morning, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate you devoting the time to it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take care. My guest was uh, Daniel Levin. He is uh, the author of um, a book called Proof of Life, uh, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. And uh, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. One thing about this world you can't depend on anything The leaders that we follow, they can't even write their name But here we are in America Ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on Our children growing hungry, teens are turning to crime And politicians know it's true, but they ain't got no time
Tom Sumner Program.com Staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side but When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride I'll see you on the other side It's not the same without you here this phone so tight Then I'll whisper you a goodnight kiss I'll see you on the other side When I crawl out of my cage When the world is purified I will find you and I promise this I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side See you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide See you on the other side See you on the other side See you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide See you on the other side Alexander Zajic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 